Abroad in Education is a podcast that unpacks the international suitcase through interviews with EdPats. EdPats are expatriates working in education and living in some of the most beautiful places around the globe. I'm your host, Tiffany Lachelle, and you can find out more about me at abroadineducation.com. And now, the show. My aunt and my grandmother, my aunt is also a school counselor. Okay. So I'm like, I got to get this to them. Are they going to agree? What are they going to tell me? So when I speak to my grandmother about it, she said, eh, eh, no, sir. That's not for you. China, after you don't speak Chinese. So, okay. And then I told my aunt. And first of all, I was like, no. And then later on, I brought it to her again. And then she says, you know what? She says, at my school, you have all of these white teachers who they come. And before they come to work at this, the New York City public schools in the hood, they do the same jobs at those international schools abroad. Mm. And they get their experience, they travel, they save money, and they do all of these things, and then they come back to the States. So she says, I'm going to tell you, you go ahead and you do it too. Hey, everybody, and welcome to episode seven of Abroad in Education. We are moving right along. (laughs) It's already episode seven, and I really want to just take a second to say thank you to everybody who has, you know, left a message, left a comment, taken some time to listen. I truly appreciate the different things that I'm getting in return for the content that I'm putting out. So, Thank you, thank you, thank you. So before we get into today's guest, I want to send a shout out to Prince Eric and Kim Kim Castanelli. Um, We were engaging in a dialogue with uh, myself and Marla Hunter, who the previous episode was about, and some great conversations sparked out of her interview. Um, One of the things that came up particularly was about this romanticized view that Black Americans tend to have about countries in Africa. And, you know, just kind of talking about how um, China and Nigeria has this very non-traditional relationship where you can see the changing dynamics that's going on. And that really connected with me for some reason. And I don't know what it is that I'm going through, but for some reason, I've been connected to this word home. And for me, it's not that, you know, I don't know the traditional definition, but because I live such a non-traditional life, I'm learning how to define home for myself. And when Prince Eric was talking about, you know, a lot of the things that stemmed out of the episode, he actually used home a couple of times. So he was basically saying that, you know, as an expat, as a traveler, he always goes out of his way so that he'll know what's happening, you know, wherever it is that he calls home. He just feels like he needs to be informed with what's going on. And I completely understand that. And then the second time he used the word home, he was basically saying that when he lives his life abroad, he's very intentional about engaging with people that's from that local community. He was saying that his his circle is small, and um, in order for him to truly connect with the people around him, um, he's intentional about 
kind of disassociating himself with people that are like him. And he said, too often people get comfortable and disengaged. And then we start to enjoy the socioeconomic and social privileges that we can't get when we're home. So that was the second time he used the term home. And it just sparked a lot of reflection, um, a lot of things that I'm just like, okay, where are we? (laughs) So I'm reading this article and the author of this article is Cynthia Dillard, who is um, a professor at Ohio State University. And this article was published in the Journal of Teacher Education. So it's called Walking Ourselves Back Home, the Education of Teachers Within the World. So in the context of this article, she is preparing to invite her family over to Ghana and she starts to have her own reflexive experience with thinking about home versus home. So in this article, she's basically saying that You know, um, she believes that international experiences are both critical and crucial sites of contradiction because it basically gives us an opportunity to transform and reconstruct our perspectives on teaching and learning. So, of course, it's connected to the classroom, but it's one of those things where she's saying, you know, teachers need to engage with the world. And too often, we're having conversations about the students in the classroom, but we're not having enough conversations about teachers in the classrooms. And in this article, she is basically asking for teachers to start to reflect on how it is that we've come to know what we know, how it is that we've been conditioned to think the way that we do. So she is using her experience in preparing for her family to come abroad to kind of think back and, and go be in this reflexive state to go back and understand how did she come to think of teaching the way that she does. And this is interesting because there's really not a lot of articles out there that talk about international teaching, one. And two, there's not a lot of conversations out there um, talking about the experience of black teachers in international education. So In her reflection, she basically gives five different things um, that she is wanting to uh, convey in this article. So she says that being in these international spaces is it allows you to develop relationships in the world and a relationship with the world that more closely mirrors and affirms community. And she believes that community is conceptualized as connected, interrelated, whole, and global. So she says that, you know, these experiences give you the opportunity to move past just being the tourist and then also become a visitor in an unknown territory. And then second, she says that in these international experiences, we're, we're better able to define and situate ourselves. Um, and then in the midst of being able to situate ourselves, then it allows you to be able to build relationships with your students. Because as you all know, and we know, the classroom is changing. The face of the classroom is changing. And you have so many diverse students in front of you then you're able to build relationships within the diversity of humanity, not just based on where you're from or where you've been, but you realize that the world is full of different people. And then the last thing, of course, I'm only giving you three of the five. The last thing is she says that there is a confidence and esteem in having thrived within international context. 
And for her, that means that she has, she possesses a deep sense of humility. Um, She said being able to depend on others has helped her to grow and adapt in places that, you know, were new, unfamiliar. So one of the biggest things that have come out of this article is the fact that in the end, she says that in order for her to be a multicultural teacher educator, she has to follow the talk that she talks and the walk that she walks. And she challenges other international teachers to take some time to be reflexive and understand, you know, what is it that brought you to teaching? What is it that allowed you to want to engage in um, uprooting yourself away from, you know, whatever it is. What are you learning in your international experiences? Um, How did you come to think the way that you do? Or how are you unthinking some of the things that you're experiencing? So I am actually taking the challenge. And those of you that know me well, I am a journal writer. So I have been writing in my journal since I was 10 years old. Thank you, Aunt Lisa. (laughs) But I'm literally at about 20, 22 diaries. And like I said, I have been completely influenced by this term home. And I am going back and rereading some of these journals. And I want to understand, you know, what is it that led me into teaching? What is it that led me to get up and move abroad? Because honestly, thinking about it right now, I'm like... I just wanted to leave home. (laughs) So here's my challenge to you all as well, especially for the international educators that are in the field now. Take some time and just be reflective and reflexive and, you know, start to think about what, what did you experience or what were you experiencing when you decided to uproot yourself and leave home? Like, how are you influenced by home? And I hope, oh, I hope, to hear some of your responses because I swear I started reading a journal yesterday and I was like 12 years old the first time I said I need to leave home (laughs) and my whole life has been in the midst of being away from home so my challenge to you Um, based off of Cynthia Diller's challenge. And I really hope that you take the time to, you know, think about home. And that brings us to today's guest and Ed Pat, who is also working in Abuja, Nigeria. Keisha is an international counselor. Now, she is a colleague of Marla Hunter's, who was in the previous episode Can I just say that this conversation that I had with Keisha was absolutely amazing. Um, In this interview, you'll hear her talk a little bit about digital nutrition, and I'll let her tell you what that's about. Um, We talk a little bit about, you know, the school system and how we have these expectations for things to work based in this broken system. But, you know, when we look at the teachers and the children and everything else that's involved, um, there's some things that just aren't working. We talk a little bit about why teachers would choose to teach abroad and her own experience for wanting to go abroad. So I have to say that this episode is full of some great nuggets and some good laughs. So (laughs) without further ado, please welcome Keisha. Good evening, Keisha. Good evening. And thank you for joining us. 
So Keisha, tell us a little bit about where you're from and your educational journey for where you're at. Okay, so I I am born and raised in Bronx, New York. Um, I am the first generation born American to Jamaican parents. And so I'm a product of New York City public schools. Um, I went to college in New York City and Alabama, Huntsville, Alabama. I attended an HBCU. I went to Alabama A&M University. And um, I got a master's degree in secondary education and social studies. And then I returned to New York and I got another master's degree in uh, guidance and counseling. Okay. So did you spend any time working in the States before you went abroad? Yes. So um, in the beginning of my educational career, I worked in New York City as I started out as a teacher's assistant. And then I went to become a teacher. And I moved to Alabama for some time where I taught um, history to middle school students. And then I came back to New York and I was a high school history teacher for about five years. And I, I loved it. So most of your experience is, or at least, you know, your, your experience in the States is in teaching. Tell me how you got into counseling. Yes. Okay, so <laughs> that's actually a very funny story. Um, I, I graduated with a counseling degree in 2013. And um, I was working at a private school in Manhattan, and we got a new principal. And I didn't like the vibes or the, change, the changes that the school was going through at that time. And so I got fed up. And I said, you know what? I got this counseling degree. I don't want to be in the classroom anymore. And I got really frustrated. And I started applying to schools in New York and Maryland and all the places that I wanted to live. And nothing was working. Like the baby boomers were, they were not retiring. And that was like the holdup <laughs> on why I couldn't get anything. So I'm like, what the heck? So I went to the American School Counselor Association uh, website. That's the, you know, our national organization for school counselors in the States. And um, I happened to go into one of the kind of like one of the listserv areas where, you know, people are having dialogue. And I saw um, an opportunity that came up for a school in China. Mm. And I looked at it and I was like, no, <laughs> hell no. And then... It just stayed in the back of my mind. I'm like, I'm not going to China. I, that's not that's not going to work. And then one day I went to work and I had a meeting with the principal and he really upset me. And I said, you know what? I'm going to email this person who put this job description in just to ask some questions. And she responded and she answered every question that I had. She was like really, really like helpful. And she told me, she says, you know what? apply. The worst they can say is no, but if you never try, you, you don't know. Right. And so I said, okay, I sent my resume to the director of the school and this was a school in China. And he looked at it and he says, if I have, if I think there's a fit, I will contact you. And I said, okay. And maybe like the next day he says, wow, um, your resume is really amazing. And I would like to set up a, can we talk via Skype? Mm -hmm. And I said, sure. And we had the conversation and it was really, really great. And we met again on Skype. And then he says, I love you. There's one more person that you need to speak to. And 
she's the kind of like the creator of the school. If she, if she loves you, then you already have the job. So I said, okay, I interviewed with the second, the second person and she loved me as well. And within like two hours, I was, I received like an offer letter in my email. So I was just like, oh, wow, this can't be happening. This is just, no, because I, I was real. expecting it. So I was just like, okay, so now you got to consider, I come from this very traditional Jamaican family. My, my mom is deceased, so I'm really close to my mother's side of the family as opposed to my dad's side. And so I'm just like, oh, my God, my aunt and my grandmother. My aunt is also a school counselor. Okay. So I'm like. I got to get this to them. Are they going to agree what they're going to tell me? So when I speak to my grandmother about it, she said, eh, eh, no, sir, that's not for you. China, after you don't speak Chinese. So, okay. And then I told my aunt. And first of all, I was like, no. And then later on, I brought it to her again. And then she says, you know what? She says, at my school, you have all of these white teachers who they come. And before they come to work at this, the New York City public schools in the hood, they do the same jobs at those international schools abroad. Mm. And they get their experience, they travel, they save money, and they do all of these things, and then they come back to the States. So she says, I'm going to tell you, you go ahead and you do it too. She says, you go. She says, you can always come back home. If you don't like it, you can always leave. But I think it's an opportunity that you should take advantage of and you should go. Mm-hmm. And so once my aunt gave me the blessing, I was like, if she says yes, because she's like my mom, she gave me the blessing. I'm good to go. I don't care what anybody else says. And so I went. So do you find because one of the things that sticks out most to me is when I was going through my teacher education program, there wasn't mm-hmm. a lot of talk about international teaching. And, you know, what you're saying as far as your aunt, um, her realizing that some, you know, white women will go abroad or sorry, some white teachers will go abroad and then come back. Obviously, she was exposed to the notion of international teaching. Did you have any experience or knowledge about it while you were going through your teacher education program? The States. And so you need to put in the curriculum a segment on international counseling or international education how do you deal with those things because the most of the stuff that i experienced in china and in here in um nigeria it was like i learned i was learning as it was happening because mm-hmm. that stuff was not in the textbooks it wasn't in case studies it wasn't in anything and i was just like oh damn you know, I have a Facebook group called Professional um, School Counselors of Color. Okay. And so I created that for a reference. So that way, you know what? If I need help, I got people that can, you know, hey, this is what's happening. What should I do? And a lot of the stuff that I was experiencing in China and here, it's like a lot of them were just like, oh, damn, girl, we don't know what to tell you. So, you know, so, so, so let's dig a little deeper into that, though, um, you know, with deciphering between the curriculum that prepares teachers to teach in American schools versus what would be necessary for international schools. What are some of the things that you were experiencing? Okay. So here's a prime example for China, China. um, You know, it's a big thing. Like they don't have a lot of mental health facilities. And so if you have people who like 
there's there's a big stigma about labels there. Anything that's going to bring shame to the to the family, to the culture. And so if you know that there's a student who maybe has a learning disability or maybe going through some um, mental trauma where they need to speak to a therapist. Like I had a student who was, um, she was suicidal. Mm. And the school that I was at was a boarding facility. So it wasn't like we can say, you know what, um, when the parents come to pick them up, make sure you, you take your child to the therapist. No, there was no therapist. The, the closest therapist to us was in Hong Kong. And that was about maybe an hour and a half away by ferry boat. Wow. So when you think about the area, like China is massive. And so when you think about like the particular area that I was in, um, when I was researching for mental health providers, it was like three. So imagine the size of Texas, right? And in that whole state of Texas, as big as it is, you only have three mental health providers there. Wow. Yes. So the province, the province, I was in Guangdong province. Guangdong province is really, really big. And within that whole province, it was only three mental health providers. So I'm just like, I'm not, I'm not trained. That's outside of, I would be operating outside of my scope. Right. So I can help that child, but only, but so much. And I don't want to, I don't want to do or cause any harm, you know? And so it's just like, oh my God, what do I do? And so I had to, one, notify the parents. And when the parents realized the severity of the situation, they, they couldn't believe it. So the mother was crying. She, she didn't know what to do. And now I have to calm them down, let them know that we can work on the situation. Would you please go and take her to Hong Kong so that she can see the closest therapist to us? So it's stuff like that. Like, what do you do? There's nothing in the textbook that prepares you for that. Mm. Here is, here is a entire culture that if there is any form of uh, disability or whatever, you know, perceived to be as some form of weakness, they, they would rather not have that child evaluated or see a doctor so that they can get better. They would rather hide that child in some closet or someplace else where no one is going to see it. Right. And so when we're trying to tell them, no, it's not going to, it, it's going to help us help her. They don't get that. Right. So, you know, that's interesting because it reminds me of like the early 1900s with, you know, anything with mental illness, physical disabilities. It was, you either, you know, check them into an institution or you keep them in the basement. Like we've, we've mm -hmm. come a long way. I'm telling you out of sight, out of mind. Wow. You know? So right now, um, while you're in Nigeria, what age or grade level are you working with? Okay. So I'm working with, um, the elementary school. So that's kindergarten through grade five. Okay. Now, do you find that some of the experiences that you were having in China are similar or completely different from your experience in Nigeria? To be honest with you, I was expecting um, Nigeria and China to be very different. But culturally, both cultures are very much, pretty much the same. They have a lot in common. And so a lot of the issues that I was having with um, the high schoolers there because um, you got to remember, these are 
these are the elite of these, you know, these particular countries. So we have um, very wealthy children who their parents own uh, corporations and things of that nature. Here in Nigeria, we have um, children who are like maybe the grandchildren of former presidents and um, ambassadors and things of that nature. Mm. So still a pretty wealthy population. Um, a lot of the issues that the children are having, such as um, their parents working all the time or traveling all the time so they don't get to see the parents and it causes the children to, uh, you know, they act out because they feel like, you know, no one is, no one is there. Now, what's interesting, because I had high schoolers in China, they pretty much were like many adults. They went on vacations alone. Like, how are you in 11th grade and you're booking um, hotel rooms and air, airplane tickets to Bali to go hang out for the break with your friends? Oh, hey. <laughs> oh. Wow. When I was in 11th grade, I had to ask my grandmother, could I go over to my friend's house across the street? Across the street, you, yes. <laughs> and you booking you trips to other countries. To Bali and this place and that place. <laughs> now, here in Nigeria, what what I'm what I'm seeing is because a lot of these um parents do a extensive traveling, the nanny housekeeper is the one who end up really raising these kids. Mm, right. And so the kids also act out because their parents are not there. Right. And, you know, so those are the things. But culturally, the value, high value is really placed on family, family life, um, things of that nature. So I'm like, wow, I left China and came to came back to China because yeah. it's the same thing. I saw like no, no difference with the exception of, OK, they're Chinese and everybody here is black, you know, but. They, their, their, their value system is very, very, very similar. It is so interesting that you say that because I have a friend who um, is an administrator in a, school, in, in a school in Illinois. And mm -hmm. one of the things that, you know, she holds dear to her heart is the fact that when you are comparing children, like children mm -hmm. are children are children. And yep. regardless of your talk, if you're talking about a child who, you know, is in a low economic status, the parent works all the time, you know, you don't have a lot of contact. And if you do, you know, it may not be actually seeing the child, you know, you can go through all of these, these labels as far as what this child is lacking in this relationship. But she's like, there's no difference in the child that comes from a very high, stable, um, high economic family who, you know, the parents are traveling or still the parents are working or, you know, the lack of involvement. Children are children and they just want to be wanted. They want to be loved. They want attention. It's the same thing regardless of the family. So I think that's amazing that between China and Nigeria, you're finding that, you know, just give them some attention, love them, hug them. That's what's needed. <laughs> One of the things that I've noticed is that just like anywhere, it doesn't matter what your station is, your class, your race, your gender, parents, just like kids will be kids no matter where you go, what culture they may be, parents are the same way. And we, I'm finding that we have all of these parents who are, you know, have all of these great accomplishments. They're making multi-millions and billions of dollars and they're not staying home with their children. And at the end of the day, when their children are going through, you know, expressing the, you know, the frustration and the stress that they're, you know, with the absence of the parent, the parents find themselves in a situation where they don't know what to do or how to even parent. 
Right. I did a I did a workshop on digital nutrition. And what a lot of the parents are doing is, you know, when the kids are acting out, they're giving them uh, all of these electronic devices, iPads, this cell phone, this blah, blah, blah. And so that has become the parent now. And so when the ch- oh. when the parent needs the child to do something, um, they're finding it extremely difficult. And so I had to do this thing at the beginning of the school year where we say, okay, so in order for your child to have a successful year at school, these are the things that we need you to do. One, we need to talk about nutrition. What are you feeding the child? You have to make sure that they're getting proper exercise. They're drinking water. They're going to bed at night. Um, If the child is two years and under, because um, the school in Nigeria does have... um, uh, a pre a preschool children two years and under should not have any any um any contact with any um handheld devices and hmm. children who are two and up should only have an hour per day now the problem that we're having now in a lot of these international schools is that they're that they're really excited about is this one to one technology Okay. So every student who comes in, they get an Apple computer. And if they're in the elementary school and below, they get an, they get an iPad. But according to American Pediatric Association, that is the recommendation that they're giving. And so the parents don't know how to parent, how to do activities with their children without giving them the pacifier, which is the device. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so I had to go and tell them about, okay, so we do family dinners. We sit down and we ask each other how each other's day was. No one takes their plate and goes into different rooms in the house. Mm-hmm. You can have a family game night. There are things that you can do to engage your family together. And when you start, yeah, it's going to be awkward. But the more that you do it, they get, they get, you know, they look forward to that time together. Because as a family, you guys are growing and you're bonding. And that is, that's what's not happening. They're not bonding because no one is there. I love that. And it's so, it's interesting because you're actually teaching the parents how Mm -hmm. to be parents. And I truly Mm -hmm. believe that is one of the things that are lack, that's basically lacking in, I'm not going to say the U.S. context generally, but in a lot of the problem schools, um, playing this blame game. The parents are wrong. The teachers are wrong. The system is wrong. This is wrong. The curriculum is wrong. And it's like, I think we just need to go back and honestly talk about how are the teachers being taught? How are the parents Mm -hmm. being taught? You know, how are we holding ourselves accountable for the roles that we're supposed to be playing? So I love that. Oh, I love that. And digital nutrition is is really catchy. (laughs) Everything is so different because if you look at when we were kids, right? You think about in your house, your parents were there. If you came from a a, a, a two-parent home or a single-parent home or whatever it may be, um, there were certain things that happened. Your family was involved in some aspect of your life. You learned things from your, your mother. Your mother learned things from her mother and so forth. Right. And what's happening now in, in this generation, there's a disconnect. Somewhere along the line, we dropped the ball somewhere. And so now it's not only happening education wise in the schools, but it's also happening in the home. So you have now this broken, (laughs) this broken family and this broken school coming together, trying to talk about, they're trying to educate somebody. Yeah. Yeah. You know what I mean? Oh my goodness. So, (laughs) 
Yeah, but I mean, but like when you really step back and you really take a look at it, you're like, wait a minute. No, the whole system is broken. Thank you. This is the issue that I have because, you know, it's so funny. So in the studies that I'm doing, we I'm, mm -hmm. I'm right now I'm focusing on um, teacher attrition and just okay. basically understanding, you know, why why do teachers leave? And you hear mm -hmm. a lot about teacher turnover. You hear a lot about burnout. You hear a lot about, you know, these scholars who are basically saying, why do we have this this uh, teacher shortage or, you know, all these issues with the system? <laughs> and one of the biggest things is, you know, teachers feel unsupported. They feel that they're not qualified. They don't know how to build relationships. But my thing is, at the end of the day, I wonder, why are we using this system that was created to you know, create factory workers and show them how to go and do labor jobs. Why are we still using this outdated system in a world exactly. where we have technology, where we have access to global education, where we have access to creativity and innovation? Like, why are we using mm -hmm. this old system to try to recreate different results? Like, it doesn't matter. It doesn't make sense. We got to change mm -hmm. the system. Yep. And, and that's why that's why we're behind. We're behind not only academically, but when, because my, my focus, yes, I'm always going to be about the academics, but my primary focus here in Nigeria is more so character development, social and emotional um, development. And all of that is impeding many of the children that I come in contact with. Mm. But it's like, okay, it's, it's a cycle. It's like the parents, that's how they grew up. And so you only do what you know, unless you realize that there was a flaw in the system. There's some form of dysfunctionalism in your family that you recognize that you say, you know what, it's going to stop with me because when I become a parent, I'm not going to do that. Right. And that, that happens. But across the board, when you look at what other schools are doing, some schools are Yes, we were we're cutting edge, and we have the latest technology. But they're still doing the same thing, just with more shiny equipment. Right, right. You know, so like, are we are we really changing? Like, if we look at what's happening, what is it in Finland, where they they got they're getting rid of subjects, right? You know, and they're that. they're letting children students pick what they want to learn and what's relevant to them. You know, so it's just like, it's like, wow. And so I find that it's like, you know, when you hear, yes, I attended this international school in this country. And then you have Kiki, who's going in some, some, some inner city school in the Bronx. And they don't have the latest tech books. They don't have all the latest stuff like that. But you would think that this, this child attending the international school would be receiving a top-notch education mm. because of the tuition that they're paying. And oftentimes what I've discovered in my international circle from some of my experience and the experience of my friends, a lot of these international schools, they don't know what the hell they're doing. <laughs> they don't. One, you got, you got the, the, the turnover. Yes. Where people who get people who take these jobs, when you really think about it, the mindset. Oh, I just want to save some money. I want to travel. Mm -hmm. I want to just travel. I'm gonna go. I'm gonna go to Burkhai and I'm gonna go here. <laughs> and, I'm, and that's that's and that's their mindset. So they don't care about the pedagogy. They don't care about all of that stuff. I'm just gonna be here like for two years and then I'm gonna leave. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and then 
you got another teacher who's going to be there for two years and another teacher for this for two years. Now I'm talking to some parents because their children are going to be there from K through 12. A lot of parents don't like that those teachers leave every two years because the school now doesn't get the opportunity to grow. Right. You know what I mean? And so as that happens now, you're paying top dollar for this, this, this system. But let's just say you get a teacher who's fresh out. She don't know what the hell she's doing. Nobody's mentoring her. Nobody's giving her no guidance or wisdom. And then so now your child is in her class and not getting the proper um, structure and scaffolds that they could be getting. And then now that teacher is gone. There's the, at least I can say with our inner city schools in the United States, at least they're the kids are getting some form of consistency. Right. You know, right. here in the international realm, it may not always be consistency unless you're one of those top schools that people know about you and that the environment is good and you get people to stay for five plus years. So let's and those, go into mm-hmm. that. I, I really okay. love the fact that you're talking about teachers right now because mm-hmm. one of the things that I'm most interested in is understanding the motivation behind why, you know, someone would just uproot themselves and move abroad. And you're right. Mm -hmm. There's a huge difference between, you know, someone who is going to travel, you know, and and my Mm -hmm. skill just allows me that position (laughs) or Mm -hmm. someone who truly has an interest in education and, you know, providing a service for children. Um, Mm -hmm. So what do you think the motivation is for particularly African-Americans but, you know, in a U.S. educator, why would somebody want to go and move ab- and teach abroad? It's exciting. And you're not home doing the same thing day in and day out. That's the lore of it. When I and what I'm about to say, I know you're going to laugh, but it's, it's the honest truth. When I started working in China um, and I got there, the first thing that I did, I wanted to document the process because when I was looking for videos of people of color, because there's, there's millions of videos with uh, white Americans, can, white Canadians in, in abroad working overseas mm-hmm. in education. Mm-hmm. There's none of us. And so I said, you know what? I'm going to document my process. And so I have my YouTube channel where from the time I got the job to the filling out the visa, taking it, I, I videotape all of it. And so I would share my journey with other people on Facebook to let them know, listen, I'm not nobody special. I'm Keisha from the Bronx. And if I can do it, you can do it. While I was doing that now, I would get people who were like, oh, my gosh, really? This is what you're doing? And is that easy? I want to do that. I want to travel. I want to do what you're doing. And then those would be the ones that are public on the profile. Then I would get this. Some in the in the inbox okay okay oh oh this is exciting i like what you're doing sometimes sometimes it's like other educators sometimes it's people who are are um maybe they're trying to figure out their lives and they don't know what to do and so they're looking at an avenue like what could i do to get me out of here because there's a lot of i find that a lot of black people want to leave the united states in a way that they'll be able to sustain themselves and still make an American salary. And so you have those people now who are now have become inspired to go back to school. 
And then in the inbox, you also get those those gentlemen who are like, wow, I think what you're doing is so sexy. Sexy. So you, <laughs> yes. Okay. Uh, you, you're living you're living your best life like it's golden. That's so attractive. <laughs> That's why I said you're gonna laugh. Because the amount living of your life like it's golden <laughs> came into my mailbox, inbox on Facebook, talking about, so can I come and visit you? What you doing, girl? Oh. Yes. So it, it's all of that. You know what I mean? But again, your your main question is why would why would educators do that? And it's because of all of those things. When you're home, you're just a regular somebody. Yeah. Yeah. But when you're but when you're away and people don't know that you're giving them a glimpse into your life that may not totally be 100% accurate. Oh, I'm in Thailand. I'm I'm in Phuket and look at me on the beach. Cheese posted <laughs> on Facebook. Then everybody who's stuck in wherever they are, dag, she always going somewhere. Mm. mm. So it's it's an all it's also an illusion. It's also an illusion. And so some of those things, that's what, you know, excite educators that, that I find. And like some people in my circle, but a lot of the people that I work with think that way, you know? And so it's just like, wow. So is that your real main focus? Is that why you really came abroad? Some people, they use it for an opportunity to save money. Student loans are a real thing. Yeah. And sometimes when yes. your payments are, like, if you get a payment that's like $500 per month, okay, wonderful. But if you get a payment where your monthly payment is $2,000 a month, you can't live. Okay, and so, so I can't live off what, of 500 either. <laughs> me, me, okay, I, I need all of my hundreds. I need all of them. But you have some people who will come abroad and come up with a plan. And I think that this is a good one. All right. I have this amount of loans. If I can dedicate myself to stay out here for five years or six years, I can pay off all of my student loans and return to the United States debt free. That is a good one. That, that's, that's like the best one that I've heard. Mm -hmm. But all in all, what I've come to realize is that many people who come, Sometimes they're running from things within their own lives, some That's form real. of dysfunctionalism, or maybe they were working and could not keep a job in the district that they were in and they got fired and this is their last resort. Mm -hmm. So you have those people, you got the travel people, you got the people who are trying to save up with a plan, a financial plan to return to the Americas debt free. And you got other people who are just like, no, I'm really interested in culture and education. And although I'm providing a service, I'm also receiving from the people as well. I'm learning. And that's interesting because I feel like all of all of your categories are spot on. And one of the mm -hmm. things that I try my best not to do is to judge the category, but just kind of mm -hmm. understand, you know, where are people coming from? And one yes. of the things that I think we don't pay enough attention to is, mm -hmm. you know, when we talk about educators or teachers or counselors or, you know, whoever they are, we talk about mm -hmm. them in this holistic sense of you, you are your position, right? Yes. So when you mm -hmm. look at a teacher, you don't look at her as a person. You look at her as a teacher or him. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So when I hear you talking about this, it's like, 
You know, I, I even from my own experience, I can't say that my purpose of wanting to teach abroad had anything to do with the students. I don't think it had mm-hmm. anything to do with the educational institution I was working with. It had nothing to do with the curriculum, the PYP mm-hmm. program. It was me selfishly wanting to live a life that made mm-hmm. me feel whole. Now, education yeah. is something that I'm, I'm very passionate about. But it was like working in education in a U.S. context was not fulfilling to me. So I don't know. Yeah. It just seems like it, it, it is that, you know, global citizenship, wanting to embrace something different. But then mm-hmm. also you can't lose that piece of you're a teacher, you're a counselor, this is your job. You got to have, you know, yeah. integrate the two. <laughs> mm-hmm. you, yeah, it, it's, it's a must. But like you said, a lot of people, they, they don't do it. And I think, I don't know, it's like, do they, do they even know how to do it? That's like, that's, that's a, a question, question that needs to be answered. <laughs> that's a good question. Yeah, it, it is. And, and honestly, asking people to reflect on that because you are 100% on when you say there's a lot of runners. And mm-hmm. especially when you're looking at the runners, those are the ones with unstructured classrooms. You know, they don't yep. have a lot of um, engagement in their their facilitation. With it's it's a it's a mess, and you can see them as a mess because they're more interested in the ski trips on the break mm-hmm. <laughs> rather than sitting through this meeting talking about how our kids are going to mm-hmm. perform better. So it's yep. obvious, and I don't know it's if the- they get enough time to reflect. They they don't, and it's like I I realize now what a lot of schools are doing. They're they're putting up this plan to you know what are some goals that you have for yourself personally and professionally. But I think is a I think is a joke because you get these people to do this, and you meet with them and you talk about it, but you don't really care, and you don't follow up to see if they're actually doing these these measures. Mm-hmm. You know, so that's that's not taking place. And so I'm just like, okay, that's why I said, again, the system is broken. You have a lot of people who are in charge of the schools who they don't really know. Like if they were in the States, they probably would not be appointed a director or a principal. (laughs) Right. But because some people can be at the right place at the right time, then they slip in and get positions that they shouldn't have. And then so now here you go, you know. You, then you start hiring. You know, I, I went to a workshop and the guy said something like, you know, to administrators, you know, you need to be careful because eventually at the end of the day, you're the one who hire your problems. Oh, oh, that's deep. right. It's deep. This is like, it's, it's so simple, but it's like, uh, but this person is not doing what they're supposed to do. <laughs> yeah, but you hired them. So oh, that's your fault. You'll mess up. You know, and so it's like, I see. I see like those people who tend to be very jovial and extra in those interviews when they come to the schools now, you know, those are the strugglers. Those are the runners. They don't really business about the classroom stuff, but let 345 come. Hey, are we going to the bar? Right. <laughs> let's go. Look at the Middle East. It was, let's go to the shisha shop. We need to go smoke okay. real quick. <laughs> they they, they want to turn up every day. Yeah. Every day. Turn yes. up, turn up all the time. I'm wow. like, look, when I get home from work, as soon as school leave finishes, I want to go home. I want to take my bra off and I want to keep it moving. <laughs> I don't go outside until the weekend. 
okay? No, y'all turn up too much. Y'all play too much. Stop. I love it. You know? Right, right. Well, Keisha, let's shift into, since Mm -hmm. we're already talking about it, let's talk about your personal life. A little bit about... um, you know, what, what is it like being in Nigeria? How do you keep yourself busy? You know, what is it that you do weekly? Give us a little snippet of what it feels like being there. Okay. So Nigeria is, (laughs) Nigeria is actually a really great country. Um, it's not for the faint at heart though. Um, you have to be very strong to be here. Um, if you are not, you can get, um, they will push you to the side and you, you know, you don't take anything personally. It was easy for me to adjust because, um, like I said, in the beginning, my, my family, you know, they come from the Caribbean. My parents are Jamaican, my grandfather, my maternal grandfather, he's Cuban. And so I've spent many summers in the countryside of Jamaica chilling, Mm. you know, so that's that was my saving grace. So even when like other American staff came, even black Americans, like when they got here, it was just like, whoa, this is rough. This is this is straight up gangster. <laughs> For me, it was just like, okay, this is where I'm at. Do, 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 do. Okay, switch my mind. Mind frame has shifted from Bronx, New York, or New York City to I'm in the rural part of Jamaica. Boom. Okay, I'm ready. The power is inconsistent. The power goes out very often. And if you don't have a generator, then you're just going to be sitting in darkness until uh, NEPA, which is the Nigerian power company, until they decide to turn on the power. Mm. But because, you know, the school, they have they have a generator for us. So the power goes out and comes back on shortly. Um, socially. Now, my social life is much better than it was in China to a certain degree. Okay. Abuja is a very small town. So even though it's the capital, Lagos used to be the capital some years ago. I think about maybe 40-something years ago, they decided to move it from the coastal area part where Lagos is and move it further inland. So Nigeria is dead, uh, Abuja is dead smack in the middle. And so it's still, even though the city is, uh, it's, it's aging, um, it's still quite not finished. Okay. Okay. And so, okay. So you have to think of it as an incomplete city and that they're taking their time to do. Um, so there are some things to do, but it's not going to be popping in lively like it would be in Legos. Legos, you got everything. No whatever, whatever experience you want to have, you can do that in Legos. Abuja, not so much. Thank you for listening to part one of Keisha's episode. Here's a little snippet that'll get you ready for part two. And here's the thing. I've been, I've been asked out by white men before. Um, and I just have no interest in that. Now I can, for the record, I consider people from Puerto Rico, Dominican (laughs) Republic, um, India, I consider those people, I consider you're black. No, they are outside. Before you go, don't forget that you can find me on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook at abroad underscore in underscore ed. 
And you can always find me on my website, www.abroadeneducation.com.